Thanks for reading, Karen. Well, the first thing you'll notice as you pull out your sermon outlines today is that I spelt God's name wrong. Uh, Yahweh is spelt incorrectly. He hates it when I do that. Is there a place in the kingdom of heaven for bad spellers? Let's hope so. We're starting a new book today, uh, as Lama said, preaching through 2 Kings. Uh, we finished Hebrews, and now we come to a completely different part of the Bible, a completely different way of coming to know God, where God reveals himself and his plan for salvation in very different ways. We come to see who Yahweh is through how he acted across time in history. Last year, you'll remember, we did First Kings. Uh, if you were here for that, it was uh, quite the journey. And, and I guess the first question today is, what's the relationship between First Kings and Second Kings? You know, perhaps when First Kings hit the box office, it was such a hit that producers wanted to do a sequel, and then maybe Chronicles as a spin-off? I don't know. No, they're very much uh, one book, and the only reason they're split is because they kind of couldn't fit them on one scroll, and so... But it's kind of one big thing, more like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, one big story. Well, let me situate uh, two kings by giving uh, kind of the story so far. We're kind of in the Old Testament somewhere. Let me kind of situate it in salvation history. Uh, we can trace the significance of kings uh, in the Bible's history of God's salvation all the way up to us. Of course, God, way back at the beginning, promised to save a people, and that that promise passed through Abraham to Isaac, uh, Jacob, and then Judah, and ultimately came to, to King David, which was a real high point where God promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, a key moment in the Bible. He promised that it would be through David's son, a son of David, that the Messiah, one of David's descendants, through this person that God would save his people, that this Messiah would rule forever and that God would bless the whole world through him. And Kings, the book of 1 and 2 Kings, it's about the nation of Israel. It's kind of this uh, nation of Israel is what we're looking at. The Bible traces the history of this people. You know, again, back at the beginning, God formed the people by bringing them out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. Uh, he forms them. And then in Deuteronomy, Numbers, and Leviticus, God tells them how he wants them to live in his land. He gives them the instructions for living for his nation and how they will live. They're going to be his people in his land. And then the book of Joshua, of course, they go in and they claim the land, and it begins with such high hopes for Israel in God's land. But this optimism, is, it's deflated, isn't it, by the book of Judges, which ends recognizing that we need more order God's nation is going to need more order. It's going to need a king, a leader. Ultimately, it's going to need the Messiah to lead the people, to save them, ultimately to change their hearts, their very bodies, to create an eternal nation which could be faithful and love God. So who would be this Messiah, this eternal king? Uh, well, to do a quick recap of where we are in uh, kings so far, first kings... You know, it begins with the death of David. Remember that, that a great picture of David? There he is, this old man, and he's cold, and he's in bed. That's where First uh, Kings begins. And then chapters 1 to 8 of First Kings, Solomon takes over for him, and there's such high hopes. We have the golden age of Israel. Could Solomon be the Messiah? 
But then in chapters 9 to 11 of 1 Kings, Solomon falls, and you remember he takes many wives and he opens up the door for idols. And it all sort of goes downhill from there, doesn't it? Chapters 12 to 16 of 1 Kings, the nation splits into two. You've got the south, Judah, from which Jesus would come, and then the north, Samaria, which would eventually get wiped out. And that's where today's story is situated in the northern kingdom, with King Ahaziah, Ahab's son. The section that we are in now, as we come to 2 Kings, the first chapter of 2 Kings, it's part of a, a bigger block that starts in 1 Kings chapter 17 and goes through to chapter 8 of 2 Kings. So we'll be in this block for a couple of weeks. And it's God versus the prophets. Oh, sorry, the kings versus the prophets. The, the prophets speak on God's behalf and the, the kings push back against them. The kings turn to idols and so God sends the prophets to warn them. And of course, the main prophet is uh, Elijah. The period of the, of the kings explains how God could come to turn his back on his prized nation. Because that's, that's what happens, isn't it? At the end of Kings, Second Kings, they're exiled. How could that happen? Well, the book of uh, Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, explains that. And the question is then, will Israel ever learn? Would God be prepared to start again? The failure of the kings shows why the carrier of the promises of God's blessings it wouldn't finally be a physical nation of Israel, but a community of faith such as us here, such as the, the heavenly gathering, soon to be God's new creation in his final land, his final place. Well, let's turn to our passage today. We, uh, that, that's our little intro, a little bit of a recap. Let's get into 2 Kings chapter 1. I've divided our passage into five five scenes, kind of like movie scenes perhaps, and there's so much here that you could look at, but I'm, I'm going to focus on kind of this shifting dynamic between the rebellious king who's wrestling with the powerful God, and we see that you cannot censor Yahweh. So scene one, the rebellious king. Properly today's tale about Ahaziah begins right at the end of uh, 1 Kings, so if you turn back a page... Um, to 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 51. The last couple of verses there say, verse 51, Ahaziah, son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Judah's king, Jehoshaphat, and reigned over Israel two years. So you see that Ahaziah was son of Ahab. Do you remember Ahab from uh, last year when we were in 1 Kings? Ahab sent the northern kingdom truly off the rails when he married Jezebel, that uh, famous figure, the daughter of the priest of Baal, the the king of uh, Sidon uh, and Tyre. And so Ahab married Jezebel, and it it opened up idolatry, and things really, as I say, went off the rails. It culminated, do you remember the great showdown at Mount Carmel between uh, Elijah uh, and all the Baal prophets, and then, you know, the true prophet would rain down fire, and there was this big showdown, and of course... Uh, Elijah won, and, and the, the prophets were pulling their hair out, and no fire came, and eventually they were all uh, put to death. There was this big showdown. But Ahaziah is a case of like father, like son. He's Ahab's son. He continued to rebel against God as his parents had, refusing to listen and learn from God. Uh, verse 52 says, He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He caused Israel to sin. <laughs> Ahaziah, he, he's picking a fight that he cannot win. Verse 53 continues, He provoked the Lord God of Israel just as his father had done. 
he provoked the Lord God of Israel. His wholesale rebellion against God, this can only go one way, can't it? And the narrative uh, through the Old Testament paints the picture of people's lives. And we see how they rebel against God, provoking him, pushing him. And it's a reminder of uh, how so many in our world today do the same, poking the bear, provoking God to anger. And they may not see it clearly, but they live in rebellion when they ignore God. And so the scene is set for the beginning of Second Kings. The first scene, our book begins with a kind of a paramedic at the scene of, a, of an accident, looking at the broken glass and, and the wounded figure. Have a look at verse 2. It says, Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice window of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers instructing them, go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, if I will recover from this injury. He's fallen through the window. He must have been pretty badly injured, and so he seeks out the security of a prognosis. What's the damage? Uh, maybe, maybe our equivalent would be going to the doctor. Uh, but back then, you go to the prophet, and you work out what's happening. And so who does the king seek certainty from? Is it Yahweh, who formed the nation of Israel, who loved and ruled them? No, the king says, go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron. He ignores God. He turns to Baal, God who was with his nation. He was right there in the temple. He watched over them carefully as a loving father, but he's ignored in favor of Baal. Baal, whose temple was 72 kilometers away in the pagan nation Philistia. What an affront to God. To go to a different nation, seek a false pagan God who was impotent, Ignoring the all-powerful and loving Yahweh who'd extended his hand to the Israelite nation, who'd offered the king blessings if he would only be faithful to his maker. What a picture of rebellion, rebellion of all humanity. And that's the thing, we all look to someone for direction, don't we? If it isn't Yahweh, it's someone else. And this looking past God, ignoring him in rebellion, it's everywhere. It's, it's prevalent today as it was then. Um, look at the, uh, you know, and, well, the secular explanations for existence. Desperate to explain how we got here. Causation without a cause, without a God to make it. At the end of the day, you can't get something from nothing. Just ask a child. And yet our world is desperate to explain how we are here without God. Even considering God as the cause of life is laughed at. The rules are set up to disallow. You can't even go there. The world teaches us to be open-minded, accept the concept of an all-powerful God to whom we all owe our allegiance. And so our world looks past God for direction, for understanding. His explanation that we are made man and woman in his image to serve him as our maker and saviour, it's rejected. And our world looks everywhere but, and so the world is lost and confused. If you need direction, we're told, uh, look within, aren't we? Look within. Um, God dwells within you as you yourself. It's a quote from Elizabeth Gilbert in Eat, Pray, Love. Uh, what is, turned out to be quite an influential book, uh, remained on the New York Times bestseller list for 187 weeks. You might have seen the Julia Roberts adaptation on film. And Gilbert, the author, embarked on a, on a journey of spiritual self-discovery, a kind of a, a broken point in her life. 
And ultimately, she looked to herself for guidance and truth. She says, God manifests himself through my own voice from within my own self. God dwells within you as you yourself exactly the way you are. Isn't that the message of our world? She doesn't explicitly consult uh, Baal over Yahweh. Rather, she reduces Yahweh to her own way. As is so often the case, we reduce God's ways to ours. Uh, Miroslav Volf says, We unwittingly reduce God's ways to our ways and God's thoughts to our thoughts. Our hearts become factories of idols in which we fashion and refashion God to fit our needs and desires. How true. And so while humanity looks everywhere but, Yahweh is still there, watching, loving, holding out his hand, calling all to salvation in Christ. Well, scene two, God sees and is grieved. Remember our story, Ahaziah has just sent messengers to inquire of Baal. Verse three continues. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zabab, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says, You will not get up from your sickbed. You will certainly die. Then Elijah left. God sees. God sees all rebellion and is grieved, for it is wrong. God acts against rebellion. And in this case, he acts very directly, doesn't he? He intervenes, sending his prophet to intercept the messengers of the king. Verse 4 ends, Elijah left. He goes to meet the king's men, uh, and then he delivers God's message to them. The king's uh, men obey Yahweh's prophet. They cut short their journey to the pagan temple, and return to the king to deliver Yahweh's message. So we come to scene three. The king feels threatened. Verse five, the messengers returned to the king who asked them, why have you come back? Just imagine him. He's like, what are you doing here? I sent you off. But the messengers recognize the authority of Yahweh's prophet. And so they return with the message for the king. And verse six, they relay Uh, Elijah's words saying, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to Baal? It's a direct challenge to the king's power and authority. God has called out the king's actions through his prophet. God, the only one who could call him out, has. Well, the narrative continues in verse 7. The king asked them, what sort of man came up to meet you and spoke those words to you? They replied, a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. He said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Oh, Elijah! It's, it's as worse as it could be. I knew it! <laughs> and the whole hairy man leather belt thing, I mean, that was clearly Elijah's look, and he must have been renowned for it. It's straight away, oh, it's him! <laughs> God has confronted the king's rebellion. What do people do when God calls them out? You see, God confronts all humanity and he warns them. He puts all humanity at a crossroads as he does the king. And all must, as the king, decide. Either they dig their heels in or they repent. 
Uh, and this is what the king, the king, of course, uh, digs his heels in. And it's what all powerful people do when they are threatened, uh, when they don't want to concede. They dig their heels in and look to stamp out the problem using their power. And so verse 9 says, So King Ahaziah sent a captain with 50 of his men, 50 men to go to Elijah. He looks to crush the dissent, censor the opposition. Make no mistake, Ahaziah, like his mother Jezebel had done, intends to kill Elijah as a threat to the state. One thinks of Vladimir Putin locking up Alensky Navalny, whose opposition of the... He was the leader of the opposition party in Russia, and, of course, Putin... Uh, just gets rid of all of his political opponents one after another. And so um, Yelensky Navalny, he had him, uh, you know, trumped up these charges against him, uh, had him convicted, uh, and then th- that didn't shut him up. So he poisoned him with a, with a nerve agent, something like out of a, a spy thriller a few years ago. Uh, that didn't stop him. Um, and so finally this year he locked him up in a high-security prison. Such actions reveal weakness and fear, don't they? Uh, leaders struggling to hold on to power. Um, or, or to offer a kind of explicitly religious example, uh, think about how the Islamic faith uh, defends its authenticity. Um, so uh, a couple of weeks ago, Salman Rushdie was hospitalised as he was again stabbed following a, a fatwa which was issued, calling for his assassination because of his blasphemy against the uh, Islamic religion. He, he wrote a book called The Satanic Verses, um, and he spoke uh, badly of Islam, and so the fatwa was issued for his death. You either hold power because you, you crush the opposition through censorship, uh, or you, through your actual incontestability, as with Yahweh, right? As maker, sustainer, all-powerful Lord. Scripture and history present Yahweh as truly, rightfully uncontested. His Messiah rules forever. And so Christians don't need to defend God. We would rather defend a lion, as C.S. Lewis says. But back to our story. King Ahaziah is looking to crush those who speak against him. And as is the case, citizens and soldiers suffer in such situations. We come to scene four, the three captains. The king's men do his bidding. Have a look at verse 9. It says, When the captain went... Uh, up to him, this is Elijah, he was sitting on top of a hill. He announced, man of God, the king declares, come down. The first captain is a tool, an implement of the king's rebellion, as he looks to squash Yahweh's messenger. And so verse 10 continues, Elijah responded to the captain of the 50, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. And just as Elijah would be uh, killed for his allegiance to Yahweh, so too this captain and his men are killed for their allegiance to the idolatrous king. But the king does not repent. And like Pharaoh, you're reminded of the waves of plagues coming to Pharaoh. Like Pharaoh, he does not repent, and the battle against God will enter another round. And so we come to verse 11, which says, So the king sent another captain of 50 with his 50 men to Elijah. He took in the situation and announced, Man of God, 
This is what the king says. Calm down immediately. The second captain now, it's just interesting. He, he takes in the situation, we're told. He makes a decision to still deliver the king's threatening message against God in support of the rebellious regime. And again, in verse 12, once more, he and his men are terribly consumed by fire. And there's a, there's a chilling warning here, surely, to all that there can be no uh, excuses of just following orders, just going along with uh, society or of knowing no better. By the flag we live under, we will be judged. I'm reminded um, of uh, the trial of Adolf Eichmann, um, who was a, a Nazi German railway kind of, uh, like a public servant. He organised all the railways um, for the Nazis. And he was responsible for the mass transportation of millions of Jews to ghettos and extermination camps. Uh, and in, in 1960, so after the war, he was uh, captured and then put on trial. And Adolf Eichmann's plea was that he was a mere instrument of the leaders. He said, I, I quote, I was not a responsible leader and as such do not feel myself guilty, end quote. He didn't feel guilty. His defense was that he was bound by an oath of loyalty to Hitler. It was reported that he showed no remorse as he claimed to feel no responsibility for all those people's deaths. And the world watched the trial in 1962 and who had sympathy for him? The judges concluded that Eichmann had not merely been following orders, but believed the Nazi cause wholeheartedly and had been a key perpetrator of the genocide. And so he was sentenced to death. And it makes us think, what is the flag that we fly? Whose regime are we under? Who are we supporting? By the flag that we fly, that we live under, we will be judged Nobody will be able to absolve themselves from a responsibility for their actions. We all must answer the charge of loyalty or rebellion against God. We're all called to repent and turn to God. And so what is the flag that you live under? But let's return to our story. We come to the third captain now, who realises that fighting God is futile so our story continues. Let me pick it up at verse 13, which says, Then the king sent a third captain of 50 with his 50 men. The third captain of 50 went up, fell on his knees in front of Elijah and begged him, Man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Already fire has come down from heaven to consume the first two captains of 50 with their 50s. But this time, let my life be precious in your sight. And we learn from him that if we ask God for mercy before it is too late, he will not turn us away. Our story continues in verse 15, saying, The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go with him, do not be afraid of him. And so he got up and went down with him to the king. Uh, Dale Ralph Davies comments saying, uh, in the third captain's words, Israel has a model response to Yahweh's wrath. Here Israel can see the way to life. God wants to, to offer mercy, not fire. He longs 
uh, to do so. And so he sends Jesus and offers forgiveness to all. Uh, have a look at uh, Ezekiel 33.11. It'll come up on screen. It says, Tell them, as I live, the declaration of the Lord God, I take no pleasure in death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Well, scene five, final scene, God delivers on his word. Our story ends with God delivering on the words, of course, spoken by the prophet. Elijah now stands before the king, verse 16 says, Then Elijah said to King Ahaziah, This is what the Lord says. Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel for you to inquire of his will? You will not get up from your sickbed. You will certainly die. And sure enough, verse 17 records that God's word came to pass. It says, Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Everything God has says happens. God says in Hebrews 9.27, Man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. Or John 3.36, the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. God delivers, he judges, he saves, he is faithful. We can try to hide from God's word. We can dig our heads in the sand. We can try to run away. But in the end, what he says always comes to pass. To the deliverance or the detriment of those he has made. In King Ahaziah, we have a model of how not to live as believers, don't we? Let's, let's do the opposite. Let's embrace Yahweh's words, living according to his will, and be at peace with our Lord, who loves to love and to give good gifts to those who look to him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Messiah, the true King, Jesus, who leads us to you. I pray for each person here, may we not fight you or rebel against you, but hear your word and trust in your Son for salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.